Welcome to the party, pal. The Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Across the world on the interwebs at MichaelDukesShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or translator. Hi, how are ya? It's Friday. It's not really Friday. I mean, I, I just, full disclosure, it's not really Friday, but it's Friday for me. <laughs> Today is the last day of the week. I am uh, taking. Uh, <clears throat> we're. I'm taking tomorrow off. That's. It's. It's official. It is the official holiday of me tomorrow, followed by the official Independence Day holiday on Monday. So, <clears throat> for me, it's Friday. For you, it's probably Thursday. But that's okay. Uh, I just wanted to give you the fair warning and heads up that I will not be on the air tomorrow morning. You will have alternate programming in uh, the interior and down on the peninsula, across the peninsula, and across the rest of the state. You will have alternate programming. And um, we'll be back together on Tuesday. (coughs) Excuse me. And I will be rested and rejuvenated. And it pried that frog out of my throat. All right. So um, that's uh, just, you know, fair, full disclosure and fair warning that that's, uh, that's up. So uh, that means tomorrow is off the air. So no Firearms Friday tomorrow. No Willy Waffle, which is unfortunate. But um, we are going to maybe cover a story or two today of firearms. Um, but we've got a lot of other things happening, a lot of other things happening, including, uh, coming up in just a few moments, we are going to be joined by Donna Ardwin, who is the former OMB director for the office of management and budget. She's also an economist and she now has had a bit of time to peel through the governor's budget and take a look at it. And she's going to give us a full, well, mostly full overview of what really, she's going to try and dissect it for us and cut through the talking points and cut through the press release and the headlines and give us, uh, you know, kind of the straight dope on everything that's happening with the uh, budget this coming year. And are there, are there really uh, $400 million in cuts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that should be a fun. Uh, uh, I that that should be a fun thing. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what's going on with that. Uh, she's going to be joining us here about 24 minutes after this morning uh, to fully discuss. Then uh, in hour two, 
we will be joined for a brief period or maybe not so brief a period. I don't know. I guess it depends on kind of how the conversation goes. I got a uh, uh, I got a, a call and message this morning from Representative Ben Carpenter, who um, uh, is got he's a little heated. He's a little heated, apparently. And uh, I guess I want to make sure that I quote this properly. So that I know, because I this is the first time hearing about it. He wanted to know if he we had a few minutes this morning where we could discuss it, and I did. He said uh, the Kenai grand jury was disbanded yesterday when they tried to investigate alleged corruption within the Alaska judiciary. Judge Wells sent them home and told them they couldn't investigate. Uh, he said he wanted people to know that this is serious and it is being dealt with. The grand jury is the last bastion, by the way, of the citizens um, uh, of the citizens' judicial process. It really is the 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 final step, and the, and the last shield wall against some kind of government theory. It's the one thing that allows investigations into basically virtually anything. The fact that a judge who's part of the judiciary, who's invested in this whole thing, and has a, a explicit conflict of interest, disbanded a grand jury, does raise some serious concerns. So uh, we'll get some details on that from um, Ben Carpenter here in hour two this morning to discuss further. We'll be we'll be ready to go and and diving into that here in just a little bit. Meanwhile, it's uh, off to your headlines. Off to a few different headlines uh, so you can see exactly what's going on. Well, it was announced yesterday that uh, former President Donald Trump plans to attend a uh, rally this next week for candidates that he has endorsed, including Sarah Palin and Kelly Shibaka and Mike Dunleavy. A statement from his political action committee says the rally will take place July the 9th in Anchorage. Uh, of course, Palin running for U.S. House, Shibaka running for Senate, and uh, Dunleavy running for governor. Uh, Trump late last year said Dunleavy had his endorsement, but that nod was subject to Dunleavy not endorsing Murkowski. And that was because Murkowski voted to convict Trump at his impeachment trial last year. And so uh, <clears throat> it looks like that it looks like it's the time. And uh, I saw one of the headlines on Must Read said tickets are going fast. Get them now. Get them while they're hot. And feel free to go ahead and take mine. Uh, you, you, you go, go. You guys go. Enjoy. Have a have a good time. Like I've said it before, I'm not sure that that's necessarily. Uh, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. Uh, I I just don't really know. But uh, I will be uh, I'll be hanging out with the fam for that. That'll be that'll be my thing here for that that deal. Um, and Chris in the chat room says. I wonder how those three feel sharing a stage in that context. That's the uh, yeah, that that's an interesting uh, <laughs> that's an interesting thought, putting all three of those, you know, really powerful personalities on the stage. Well, two out of three, anyway, uh, should be an interesting um, should be an interesting uh, event. Let's put it that way. Uh, 
Um, the Division of Elections has finally released a sample ballot for the uh, <clears throat> excuse me for the August sixteenth primary, and it is as we've feared so far. The front page of the ballot looks like that it will be listed for senator, representative, governor, and apparently. Um, the, uh, apparently the house seat or state Senate seat that they are going to be voting for. And that is all it, uh, and that is all for the, uh, in the jungle primary form, meaning the only vote for one. Then you turn over the ballot and you'll have the special selection for the special general election for the U.S. House seat. And that's where you will be ranked choice voting uh, on the various candidates. So, they're, they're, yep, they're doing it all on one sheet of paper. They're, apparently, they're, they're doing it all on one deal. And uh, hopefully, everybody is not confused and understand what's going on and... Uh, that's let let the games begin let the games begin this should be the fun fun time to uh, figure out exactly what's uh, going on out there uh but they've got pictures and the uh, must read alaska's got the story up if you haven't taken a look at the story yet you can go see some samples of what the ballots will look like i was curious as to what the rank choice portion of the ballot was going to look like and this gives us a better idea of being able to Fill in the blanks, fourth, you know, one through five or whatever, one through four with a write-in. And we talked with Chris By yesterday. He's going to be a write-in. So many of us will probably be writing him into the general election as well. Um, but there's a look at it. I've just posted a link up in the chat room if you want to go take a look at it. Or you can go over to Must Read Alaska. It's up near the top of the – it's up at the top of the page right there. This is what your August 16th ballot will look like is the title of the uh, story up there. And uh, the final story that caught my attention this morning, because there's really not a whole lot of other things that are catching my attention, is that the Juno School Board is still continuing to investigate the floor sealant served to children as as milk. The uh, I mean, this has been going on for two weeks. The school board has scheduled a teleconference today to consider proposals for a third-party investigation in which 12 children and a couple adults were served chemicals that came in jugs that had a whitish appearance. They were served it as milk. Uh, the board said it's fully committed to investigating the events leading up to the children being served sealant. I would hope so. I hope they're fully committed to investigating and hopes to ensure proper safeguards are in place to prevent such a mistake from happening again. Uh, happening again. Early indications point to the floor sealant being stored in a food storage warehouse along with the food. And uh, they're they're in the middle of meeting all those things, but that investigation is still ongoing. I can't. So, I mean, this, I, I just don't even know. How do you how do you do it? How do you do it? Um. It's uh, it's a weird thing. I guess we'll uh, we'll we'll f- we'll figure out exactly what exactly happened if we ever find out, 
And again, just reason number 612 why you probably shouldn't test your children to the public school system. It was a, it was a summer care program, but it was put on by the school. So again, I just don't know why you would trust that to happen. All right. Obviously, I'm grumpy. And milk is good for you. It does a body good. Sealant, it it does a body wood. It's a whole different thing. All right, we got more coming up. We got to get out of here. Donna Ardwin is up next. We will continue with more. Don't go anywhere. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We'll return with Donna Ardwin, our guest, right after this. Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the the, the internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay. vocal fry okay hey how are you guys doing (laughs) Uh. yeah good morning good morning good morning something about a new airline um and stutes is getting a challenger is she getting a challenger did i I don't usually go to the Kodiak Daily Mirror, but uh, is that is that is that the story? Is uh, Louise Stutes getting a challenger? Um, did I miss that story? I'm looking here. Uh, I don't see it. I don't see it. Okay. Well, I'll have to. I'll have to get the scoop on that, Brian. I didn't hear. That she was getting a challenger. Um, okay. Good morning. Good morning, Dan. Give him hell, Ben, says Will. Uh, says Bill. <laughs> Bill Brock is back in Facebook jail for a week, he says. Um, let's see. Facebook jail is a place to be, is the place to be nowadays. Everybody's going to be in Facebook jail. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Kyle's in Facebook jail as well. Looks like all the cool kids are in Facebook jail. I'm not because I'm not a rabble rouser. Uh, Maybe I am. Uh, Glad they're protecting the environment by using one sheet for the ballot, said Brian. Cue Cheryl Crow. Um, You mean they're actually getting someone who actually knows how to do an investigation? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Fred Astaire, I know I had to laugh. Brian's like, holy cow, Fred Astaire is running for governor? All the candidates they used in the mock governor things are like um, (coughs) Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Bogart, and Bacall. And, of course, Pierre and Marie Curie. They're libertarians. I had no idea that Pierre and 
I had no idea that Madame Curie was a libertarian. Um, sent for some SpaceX gear. Falcon heavy shirts. We need a link for this show swag. I've been talking about the link for this show swag for the last three days. It's at the top of the Facebook page. <laughs> you can go right over there. All you got to do is look, click on my name at the top of the page, and there was a post right at the top that had the swag right there. Uh, the SCOTUS released another ruling per article. <clears throat> the Supreme Court dealt a significant blow to the Biden administration's climate change agenda, ruling Thursday that the EPA cannot pass sweeping reg regulations that could overhaul entire industries without additional congressional approval. Yes. Yes, yes. That is 100% true. All right, let's get, uh, I guess we'll call over to Donna and get her on the blower <clears throat> here, and uh, we'll get things squared away. How about that? <clears throat> good morning, Donna. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good, good, good. Uh, you all ready to, all ready to rock and roll? I am. Okay, we're getting a little bit of feedback again on your, I don't know if it's your oh. speakerphone or if it's me, but. Probably the speakerphone. Ah, see, my voice is so powerful, it over it just, it kills your speakerphone. All right, um, hold the line, I'll be right back to you. Don't go, uh, don't go anywhere, and uh, we'll return in just a second. You can go back on speakerphone until we're ready. I just, when I start talking to you, that's when we got to come back. All right, uh, folks, do me a favor, like and share this video. If you haven't gone over to the YouTube channel yet, um, then um, go over there right now. Uh, go to YouTube and search up my name, Michael Duke Show. And uh, if you would subscribe and ring the bell, that would be fantastic. And uh, they're off. Let's get going. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty-based, free thing and radio. Donna Ardwin's our guest. Let's do this thing. Here we go. All right, continuing now, we're getting ready to uh, getting ready to dive into it. Donna Ardwin is our guest, former OMB director and economist. She has had a chance to kind of go through the governor's budget, which was released Tuesday, and hopefully we'll get some straight dope on this because you know the bottom the bottom line is I get I was getting conflicting reports on what's really passed and what's not. And the governor used some kind of voodoo math in one of his presentations talking about how much money they're actually saving over the previous years. And, I mean, <clears throat> again, you have to be an economist only, almost to understand all the kind of uh, uh, voodoo stuff that's going on in there. So Donna Ardwin has been gracious enough to come on board and talk with us about it. And she joins us right now. Good morning, Donna. Morning, Michael. Um, so, you know, we heard, I know that you and I have been talking that morning and, and the day after, um, uh, the, that afternoon after the release and, and you had started counting. And I think the last, uh, text or something that I had from you said, well, we're just about a hundred million dollars in cuts. And then the next morning, the headlines all read 
400 million in cuts and 600 million saved and money put in savings and can you can you demystify this a little bit for us here what's what's going what's going on here Sure. Well, I thought it actually might be helpful to recap what Brad has told you. Sure. Um, what Absolutely. the legislative what the legislative majorities did in the budget. Um, we talked about this briefly last week, but um, a couple of things that they did were hide or stash money all over the place in their attempt to say we're broke, we're broke, we can't right. afford the penalty. Right. And uh, and so when we talked last week, I set my prediction for vetoes was the governor probably wouldn't veto a lot of real spending, but he might veto some of the shenanigans that they played to hide money. Right. Uh, as though I, I suppose they, they think you all aren't, aren't smart enough to understand what they were doing. And I'm sure you are, but um, so he, so he vetoed some of that. He vetoed 360 million that was being put into the, statutory budget reserve the sbr and that got confusing because people thought well that was 360 of the 400 it really wasn't but there are some other things that were moving money around um an extra payment to the pension fund he vetoed that uh, you know it's it was silliness and i don't blame him for vetoing it but it didn't really change much right the um so the vetoes that vetoed real spending, uh, I've gone through the spreadsheet that his Office of Management budget put out. And, uh, oh, what, one more thing, by the way, one of the other places we talked about that he, they stashed money was that silly unconstitutional forward funding of education. Right, right. so they put it in the K-12 through fund or something or? Well, yeah, basically, it's just a fund within the general fund, like the SBR. I mean, it's all meaningless. It's just moving money from one account to another. It's just a and, label. It's just a label. It's all the same money, essentially. Yeah, and it, and it, every appropriation dies on June 30th. So all of that money, whether it was SBR or education fund, or it should all move into the CBR on June 30th. And you say should, but you didn't sound 100% confident. So that means, is that mechanism still in effect? Is that, I mean, is it going to move? It should move? Or is there a possibility that somebody could hold on to it or what? Well, according to the Constitution, it needs to move. Okay. I just, I wanted clarification because you had a little bit of uncertainty in your voice, like it should go to the CBR, uh, you know, Um so, well, we talked about we talked about the audits in the past. I mean, the Walker administration ignored the Constitution and didn't move money into the CBR that it was supposed to. Right, right. Which later got caught, as we talked about, and finally, eventually, did get moved. So, when it was all said and done, and the dust cleared, Donna, and uh, and it was all, and things were all finished out. What? Uh, what what was the how much what was the final veto number when it was all said and done? And does I guess that doesn't does it even matter that if I get an actual number or were the vetoes sufficient? You know what's your thoughts? Yeah. So one more piece of background that Brad has also reminded us of many times is that in the at the end of session when the majorities were passing the budgets, 
They added a billion dollars to the current year, the fiscal year 22 budget. The supplemental, which right. Which has w- yeah. one month remaining in it. And then they added a, a, about $1.2 billion on top of that to the FY23 budget. So if they had put all of that money in FY23, which in my opinion they should have, that would have been a $2.2 billion increase <laughs> over the current year and over last year's budget. Uh-huh. Out of that, I estimate, it's it's not a science, but I estimate that the governor vetoed about $150 million, to be fair. If you look at his spreadsheet, his office of management and budget spreadsheet, and there's justifications, um, those things that say we prioritize savings over the spending right. are really those things that are actual spending cuts. So, and they did put some money into the CBR as well. I mean, that's part of this plan, right? Well, we need to talk about that too. Okay, wait. Well, let's don't, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. So let's finish up on the cuts. $150 million in real cuts. So can you, so can you decipher for us? When you read in the paper that the governor cut $400 million out of the budget, and nobody really seems to be very upset about this. I mean, you know, there was a few little hemming and hawing, but even most of them were like, oh, this was a hard-fought battle, and, you know, we all did our part, and the governor's got to do his part. It sounded very kumbaya to me, which compared to the governor's, you know, first budget is completely opposite. So can you can you describe what was the $400 million supposed to be? Where were the $150 million in cuts, and why aren't they more upset, or is this just expected? So there weren't a lot of real real spending reductions. I I think you might have said this yesterday when uh, Senator Baggage, not Nick, but the, the one in the Senate, said that it was a great budget. You know, that should tell you a lot. Right. Yeah, when Tom Baggage goes, well, you know, it was a hard-fought battle, but it was, but it's okay, it's a good. But yeah, I was like, whoa, okay, wait a second. So you know, well, there are some little things that were cut, some capital projects that hadn't begun yet, and uh, but but not a lot of there there. Right. Where was he? So the, I'm sorry. Where was yeah. he coming up with this 400 million number that we've seen quoted in every newspaper so far? Well, if you're transferring money from one fund to another, and then you veto the transfer, it's a veto. Legitimately, it's okay. a veto. It's but a... I'm just talking about what's what's actual spending. Okay. So again, just to break it down for those in the cheap seats. Uh, you know, when we're talking about the vetoes, they could safely say he vetoed $400 million from the budget, to which most people would think, oh, okay, that's $400 million in spending that we're not. No, no. His actual spending, because he never gets into the, 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 the dirt on that, his actual spending cuts in vetoes are 150 but he stopped another $250 uh, from being transferred and therefore we get kind of this, again, that kind of voodoo number crunching that they go, you know, oh, we cut the budget. No, what you cut was the proposed increase to the budget, so we're still really going over. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, right? Right, and so you still end up with a budget that's over $2 billion higher right? than the last year's budget and the previous year. Yeah. Um, wow, okay. 
So again, I just these are the kind of games that just drive me. But these are the kind. This is the kind of gamesmanship that just drives me bananas. We should be a little bit more clear. I mean, for a second, can you go back over the philosophy? You know, kind of your ever all money is green philosophy. Because if we had a policy in place that was very similar to that, I I think some of this kind of wishy-washy, back-and-forth, kind of uh, semantical, you know, circus that we run through would be would be less of a problem because it's, you know, moving from one to another and everything. But you're like, all the money is coming out of one account. It doesn't really what label you put on it. It's all the same money. Can you kind of, you know, give us a quick thumbnail of your philosophy on that? Yeah, so all of the money that goes into the state treasury should be prior- prioritized. And uh, and your constitution requires that. So it's not just good budgeting philosophy. It's also according to the Alaska Constitution. And over you know the past years, the legislature has stashed money into certain funds, um, into corporations, you know, kind of all over the place. So it appears that it's off limits for spending, even though the legislature can spend it on anything they want, but in part, it's to protect their favorite programs, and in part, it's to keep the money out of Alaskans' hands, in my opinion. Right, and obfuscate the whole thing, right? It makes it that much more, it makes it that much more complex, right? I mean, if, if, you, if it, the whole thing was, it's all one big bucket of money and here's what we got to do, it really simplifies it. But the second that they start saying, oh, no, it's this fund and it's that fund and it's this fund and it's this pocket of money and it's that pocket of money, and all of a sudden people are like, well, I can't track all that stuff down. And you're like, no, 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 it all comes from the same bucket. It's all the same bucket. And, and I think that's... I think that's intentional to try and, like you said, obviously, to me, obfuscate where all the money is coming from or going. Oh, yes. And I watched one of the Senate finance hearings when the legislative um, finance staff were presenting to right. Bert, Bert Stedman. Right. And the obfuscation was just, I, I don't know if it was sad or laughable. Yeah, because it was so obvious what they were trying to do, trying to hide where the, what was going on to the money. And again, this is what infuriates people um, uh, overall. It's, it's it's totally infuriating. All right. Well, let's uh, we got about uh, three minutes here before we go to break. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover before we jump into the whole savings thing, which you said, well, we've really got to talk about that um, or are we going straight there? Uh, I, I think we should talk about the savings. OK, let's hit it. Go ahead. Uh, the governor has said that he is putting uh, one point was it one point two back into the constitutional budget reserve one point four something like that. Let's uh, let's talk about that. Yeah. So on the heels of the legislature having all of those meetings at the end of session to say there's no money, there's no money, we're broke, we can't afford a PFD. Um, now suddenly there's money for savings and. Uh, if I was watching it, the governor's press briefing, his OMB director came up to the microphone and said, well, we we put out a new forecast, revenue forecast in June. And so then I think so there's the Department of Revenue does a um, traditionally does a fall forecast and then a spring forecast. Right. As you might recall, right. the legislature was waiting for the spring forecast because it was going to be likely say that oil prices were going to remain, were going to be higher right. than they had forecast in the fall. 
Uh, now remember, this is for the fiscal year that begins July 1. So the forecast has to hold up for the next 13 months. Um, and I think you talked about this yesterday. So what the, the governor said is if oil prices remain high, we'll put money into savings. Right. But if they don't, rather than taking money out of spending, we're just not going to put money in savings. Right. So we'll spend it. So instead of saving it, we'll just spend it is essentially what they're saying. That's right. Um, which, oh, man, the priorities have shifted so mightily in this administration since uh, since your departure. Um, I mean, this is a, this is totally this is really I mean, I saw what you tried to do, Donna. You tried to bring the, the to bring change to an organization that was so dysfunctional in the way that it did things and the way that they accounted for money and everything else. And they, they basically undone any bit of work that you've done that you did in your tenure there at all. We're back to the business as usual. But now that we got even more money, we're just we're stacking it higher and deeper. Am I wrong? Yes, and, and just, you know, remind everyone, which you don't need to be reminded of, you didn't get your full PFD. Right, but the, we, right, but we're going to put $1.4 in savings, supposedly, um, but you didn't get your full PFD because I guess we just couldn't afford it. That's an unaffordable PFD, that's what they're saying? That's right. Right. The other thing that, the other thing that they say, and, and you've heard this, uh, which is accurate, is that a lot of that spending is in capital projects which are, everyone says, which are one time, um, but they're not. There's a, there's a maintenance tail. Right. And as, as you said many times, there should never be something called deferred maintenance because it should be built into the cost of the program. And as Brad likes to talk about the 10-year plan, it should be built in the 10-year plan, all the cost of maintaining Right. All of that capital. Right. Well, there should be a, there should be a fiscal note and a writer on every bill that says what is the ongoing cost of this bill or program going out for the next 10 years. You should be able to see that. That should be part of the conversation because it's always great to say, well, we want to build X, some building or facility or something like that, because it'll be great for the community and yada, yada. And we got some federal monies and we get you know, this and that and the other thing. Great. What's the long-term cost? They never, they never talk about what the long-term cost is going to be. The other thing I say about capital is when it's it, it also has in the past been the reason all that capital spending, the reason that Alaska is in this in this predicament to begin with. Uh, remember that during the the years when oil prices were high in Alaska, they started spending a bunch of money. Well, it's only on capital. It's only on capital. It's one time. And then when oil prices um, fell, they kept going. And as you know, spent um, most of uh, $17 billion in savings. Right. And continuing that, that kind of spend. So it's only capital sort of rings hard in my ears when I think about Alaska. Well. And, then, uh, and then, you know, they, they put – so then when – we arrived, there was $2 billion left in the CBR, which is, you know, a bare minimum needed for, for cash flow for the state. And now, you know, the governor's saying, well, we're going to get it up to $3 billion, maybe. 
maybe if we decide maybe if we decide to do it um, I mean there's some there's some definite definite irony in that in that situation right there turning it a hundred percent around and of course what I found most ironic about all this was the same group of people who could not control the spending is sent and spent 16 17 billion dollars out of savings um, and could not even be bothered to try and really do any substantive cuts at the same time were the ones that were crying this time around. It's uh, it's not fiscally responsible to pay a dividend because we're out of money now. They never had a problem spending money they didn't have because they always had the CBR to fall back on and everything else. But now, now they've become fiscally responsible. Yeah, and I don't know how anyone could call a budget fiscally responsible that's A, that large, and B, um, spent part of your dividend. Yeah, exactly. Donna Ardwin is our guest, uh, former OMB director and economist. We're going to continue uh, our discussions with her this morning. Uh, we might branch out a little bit here uh, into the coming fiscal and what we should be coming, what we should be looking for. Uh, and maybe I'd, I'd like to get her take a little bit more on some of the supplemental stuff as well. It is the Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. We're going to be back with more, and Donna Ardwin, our guest, will continue in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Our light, our guide, and our trusted friend. Donna Ardwin's our guest um, here on the program, and uh, we're, we're going to continue here in just a moment. I want to, uh, when we come back, I want to get into uh, what they've been doing with monies and the fund and what the plan is ultimately with the permanent fund itself. Uh, I want to talk a bit with Donna uh, about that, uh, but let's let's go back to the um, to this to this fundamental difference in how some politicians see what's going uh, on with the fund, and, and again, this obfuscation of all the different buckets. Donna, you, you're a little you're a student of this, obviously. Is this unique to Alaska with the, like the general fund and the non dedication, but they can dedicate, designate, uh, and, and all this kind of stuff? Is this a uniquely Alaska problem, or is this something that happens across the country? It it, it does happen across the country, but um, unique to Alaska is having a constitution that prohibits it, right. which I think is a, it's a good thing. In in other states, we've had to undo the trust funds and pour them back into the general fund, or simply prioritize them as every as spending in the general fund. I mean, some right. states are really crazy. And when Michigan, my home state, the first governor I worked for, the only trust fund was the education, the school aid fund. And then I got to Florida and there were hundreds of trust funds. I said to Governor Bush, the only thing you don't have a trust fund for is education. I mean, it makes no sense. Right, right. And it's just, you know, legislators trying to bind future legislatures by setting up a fund for their favorite projects. 
Right, and 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 not just that. Again, the second the second effect of that is to obfuscate and 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 increase the complexity of the system itself, so that I think the average citizen is in the dark. I mean, unless you get a spreadsheet and a slide ruler and you figure out and you pull out all the statute books and everything else, you you know the average person is going to have a hell of a hard time trying to figure out where all the monies are going, what the actual balance sheet looks like and everything else. I mean, I think that's partially intentional as well, that it's almost like hiding in plain sight. That's right. Um, when uh, Ed King worked for us, uh, economist Ed King put together a picture, uh, a graph uh, with all the different colors of money going in and then where they go back out, it looked like um, a spider web. <laughs> Because no, and nobody knew. I mean, he had to, he had to track all that stuff down and graph it out because otherwise, people just don't know where the money's going and what's going on. I mean, you and I talked here, I don't know, a while ago when we started talking about cash on hand and some of the other things, and you started talking about things like some of the corporations and their assets. Uh, last time we talked, you talked about not being able to see the sprout the balance sheets for some of these corporations. So we've got. I mean, would you say that we've got hundreds of millions or maybe even billions in the bank that the general public is really not aware of and maybe even some of the legislature and, and administration is just in the dark on? We don't really have a good picture of the entire fiscal snapshot of the state? I would say that. Uh, we'll remind you, though, that's one of the reasons we talked about the consolidated annual financial report of the CAPR. Uh, right. Because it does does show the balance sheets of the corporations. What it doesn't show is their revenues and expenditures, um, their their profit and loss statements. Right. So it doesn't show the ins and outs and everything else of where the money came from and where the money went. Um, that is that is. I mean, it's it's just astonishing to me that this is these are the games that we continue to play, and you've got some of the people in there who I think are intentionally playing them uh, to try and keep the is it the reins of control? Is it the control of the money, the power? I mean, in your opinion, as you've seen this in this state and in other states, is the lure here just having your hand on the purse spring and being the person that that is able to dole out the shekels? Right. And the structure in many states is that there's a centrally coordinated, not only we talked about accounting, but also the, the, the budgeting process. And in Alaska, the folks who run the corporations really are kind of running their own government and even the agencies to the extent that they can move money around. We talked about this last week. Right. So there's it's, it's a very decentralized approach and the legislature can change that, but I imagine some of those who set the system up in the first place, you know, like it that way because the things they want to have funded are getting funded and it's not transparent to the public um, what, where all the money's going. As you've gone through these different states and tried to help them with their fiscal problems and fiscal messes, is that one of the first solutions that you look for is a centralizing of the of the control and the gatekeeping on that? Or, I mean, does de can decentralization work or should it just all be pulled back together? Well, it's, uh, many states, it is pulled together. And uh, I think it's a good thing from a perspective of the governor, you know, the chief executive officer of the, right. of the, you know, the state, the corporation. Right. If I always say if I 
if I was your chief financial officer and this is a corporation, it, we wouldn't be doing anything this way. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, hold on. Let's get back to it. Donna Ardwin's our guest. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the program. Common Sense Radio, The Michael Duke Show. Donna Ardwin is our guest, economist and former OMB director for the state of Alaska. Um, we, so many things that I want to talk about. And, uh, and the problem with talking with Donna is that she's got so much information, I'm trying to formulate questions half the time uh, and listen to what she's saying at the same time. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy stuff. But we were just talking about the – in fact, we talked about it last week, this, this decentralization of the spending uh, and everything else. And we were talking during the break about – uh, you know, this could be fixed. And, and Donna, you would, you were saying that in many other states, this is what's happened is that they have more centralized the power in the governor's office, in the administration, uh, and, and, and done away with some of this spider web effect of, uh, all the money's going out and really nobody knowing and being able to account for it in a, in a comprehensive fashion. Would that be your suggestion here in the state? And, and would it require the cooperation of the legislature? The governor can't do it on his own, I'm assuming, that it would require the cooperation of the legislature to fix? Well, either of them can do it. Uh, the legislature can say, hey, you know, we want more controls over the expenditures, um, both from the agencies or in particular from the corporations. And, and they're called corporations, but they're, they're state government. Right. The, but a but they all also work for the governor. So a governor could say, "Look, we're not going to do business this way anymore." Right, and and take control of that, and take some of that control away from some of the different independent agencies and corporations. The governor, as an administrator, has some power to do that, but it would require some intestinal fortitude i guess to be able because you you would be i imagine you would be weathering some slings and arrows of people who are like this is how we've always done it and this is how we always need to do it that's right that's right and i think i told you a, a story last week about bruce tangeman and i sitting down with one of the corporations and trying to get them to open their books to us right uh, as well as the university system right and they just I mean, they just literally flat out refused, even though you, I'm assuming, had the statutory authority to ask and to look at those things. Well, the the OMB arguably does. Mm -hmm. The uh, I, I did also mention last week that the uh, they're they are exempt from the administrative code, <laughs> so Kelly Shabaka couldn't just go in and audit them. Right. But the OMB should have been able to as well. Um, mm -hmm. I want to I want to uh, talk here. We got about six minutes, um, but I want to talk real quick about this because I've been thinking more and more about this and seeing seeing this more and more. You know, we have been rolling, and Michael Sheldon makes the point in the chat room that Stedman specifically and some of the others have been rolling billions of dollars over the last few years into the corpus of the fund. 
Now, Stan, uh, Sheldon makes a point that that's part of our PFD and the rest of the money is in different funds, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what I've been thinking about and seeing. That every time that they say, we're protecting this money, we're rolling it into the corpus, my initial reaction was, well, good, at least it's out of your hands. But later on, I realized the attempt here is basically to bolster and grow the fund to the point to where they can just live on the draw and don't ever have to talk to anybody else about any other kind of money. They're looking to make government self self-sustaining and i don't mean that in a good sustainable way i mean they want to grow that to the point to where they have access to all the money they want uh if they had a hundred billion dollar permanent fund and could draw that five or six billion dollars every year with no questions asked they could basically do whatever they wanted at that point am i wrong in that or am i seeing something that uh am i seeing something that's really there well, I think it's obvious, and I think you've had legislators come on the show and, and say exactly that, that that's what their colleagues have told them um, their goal is. Um, I would suggest from an economic standpoint, um, that could only work if, and and this could be a, a, a real scenario, that you take so much money out of the what you have of a private sector in Alaska that it diminishes um, even more dramatically. And if that's the case, then people will leave the state. And the only way for the permanent fund to sustain a government with no private sector if you, is if you don't have many people left. Right. So they have their own little fiefdom where everybody, it's a self, it's literally the ultimate self-licking ice cream cone where the private sector has diminished and shrunk. The government sector continues to grow and continues to feed on itself because it has access to this huge pot of money and it is isolated in that effect from the effects of the economy for what they do. They don't really care what happens to the private economy because they know they've got that big pot of money just pumping, generating stuff out to them year after year, and they're okay with that. So maybe that's why it shows that there's such ambivalence to the uh, to the effect of uh, you know PFD takings and everything else on the private economy. And your next guest, ben, Representative Ben Carpenter, has spoken about that on your show and his significant and justifiable concerns. Yeah. about that goal and what it'll do to your what's left of your economy. I mean, if you if you were coming into a into a state and and advising a governor as you've done in many different states across the country, but as you you know, if you saw this and saw this attempt, what would your counsel be to that governor? I mean, if you saw this going on, what would, you know, give me your talk to what you would say to that governor? Um, as you looked at this as a you know a problem of uh, you know something that could be used in a different way or g- give me your speech on that. That one of your organizing principles as a governor needs to be how do we grow the private sector and everyone who works for you needs to have that as one of the primary goals. Right. So you know you have the deregulation. But you also have to have less dependence on government. And I don't just mean you've talked about this, Michael, but not just welfare, but the corporate dependence on government. Right. Corporate cronies. Until you, until you cut those strings and shrink the size of the state government, you're not going to be able to grow the private sector. So, so that's why I differ, I differ with folks who say we should have a, a tax um, in order for people to have skin in the game. If your 
state government was the size of Florida's, which is, you know, a quarter. They, Florida spends a quarter per capita, the spending that Alaska has. Yes, I know there's some geographical issues, but um, then I would say, yeah, now you can talk about putting a sales tax in place. That's what how Florida funds itself, for example. But it's a very small government and there's very little dependency on government. Donna Ardwin is our guest, uh, former OMB director and economist. Um, and uh, we're, I just, you know, I appreciate you coming in, Donna. Overall, quickly here, um, the governor's, you know, what this is not a surprise what happened with the governor, what his proposals were. Um, so this is pretty much in line with what you expected, right? 30 seconds here. It is because of his past performance. Yeah. And uh, not surprising, not encouraging either, I think, in the long run. Um, but, uh, you know, a good job, uh, uh, you know, good job uh, predicting this and giving us some analysis of it. Donna Ardwin, we appreciate that. Hold the line real quick. Folks, out of time. Ben Carpenter is going to be joining us in hour two. We may have a couple of firearms headlines as well. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Ben Carpenter up next. Oh, man. I see. I think James nailed it almost exactly here. He says, it's almost as if they try as hard as they can to go against the spirit and intent of the Constitution. Dedicated funds other than a permanent fund are prohibited, yet each one of these has a piggy bank, which are not being constitutionally swept to repay the debt owed to the CBR. They become, in effect, dedicated fund, untouchable kingdoms of political power. And that's what we were talking about earlier in this segment, Donna. I mean, that's really... Here we have the Constitution that is pretty damn clear, and there would be like, oh, wink, wink, these are designated, not dedicated. It's not the same thing at all. And I, I mean, I just, you know, and even the court, even the the courts deciding this, it's, I mean, this this kind of farcical stuff has got to stop. It it does, or you're gonna, you know, <laughs> we talk about this, and you talk about this, but Alaska is going to continue to deteriorate its private sector, and again, um, as some of your legislative guests have said, maybe that's the goal. Well, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is to depopulate the private sector, to make the private sector dependent on the public sector uh, instead of the other way around and uh, and basically create the uh, this own, again, that what I said earlier, the self-licking ice cream cone of government being able to fund itself outside because we don't have a traditional tax structure in the state. We won't. We don't have people up in arms over the expenditures of government, and they don't have to be beholden to anybody, including their constituency, because they got this pot of money, this golden goose that just keeps laying the eggs for them to spend. That I mean, nothing's going to change unless we get the right people in there, right? And can I give you just remind us of one of the sure. prime examples? So the PCE, the Power Cost Equalization Fund. Right. That falls into the category of, oh, we created a fund, a semi-dedicated fund around the Constitution. Well, it's it's worse than that because it also creates dependence upon energy dependence on state government. And one of the organizing principles of having a thriving economy in Alaska needs to be energy independence. Um, but so those those funds not only are, in my mind, unconstitutional, and non-transparent, but they also cause dependency on government. Right. 
Right. Which, again, I think is part and parcel of the plan. I mean, that's part and parcel of the plan to create that dependency on government so that they can then have more control on this. Uh, you know, we've, we've got to we've we've got to pull back on. And the PCE is the prime example. I mean, talk about, you know, giving a man a fish versus teaching a man to fish. The PCE, it was intended in the original language to build out that infrastructure to make it out. Instead, it's become a handout program where you give them a fish and make them more dependent on you instead of allowing them to be self-reliant. That's right. That's right. And I think Senator Schauer was talking yesterday about how can we bring about energy independence in, in the state of Alaska? Yeah, well, and it's it's an important question. I mean, the only way <clears throat> the only way the societies grow and that and economies progress is I mean, the, the, one of the cornerstones of that is cheap, affordable energy. That's the only way because that's manufacturing. That's everything. It's a cornerstone. And um, and if we can't get it, then it stymies it. And and we see all this resistance to any other kind of idea. We see resistance to using the PCE to actually create or generate infrastructure that would help with that. Instead, they want to use it as just payouts and handouts and supplements and things like that, which is, I mean, that's not even the intent. When you look back, that's not even what the intent of the bill was to begin with, right? Yes, and I should also mention Willie Keppel because you know Willie comes on your show and, and explains all, lays this all out for us, and uh, uh, I really hope that uh, he gets elected to office in Alaska and help turn some of those things around. Oh, I agree. We need somebody who definitely sees uh, some of this stuff and where they're burying the bodies and hiding the skeletons, et cetera, on this, and and how detrimental it can be to the rural communities as well. Well, Donna, uh, as always, it's a joy to speak with you. Um, I, Like I said, I should really just sit down for an hour and write out a bunch of questions, and then I'll throw them out because you'll always bring something up that I wasn't aware of before. And, and I mean, I'm still blown away by the fact that these corporations do not have to open their books to you in the terms of profit and loss and where the cash flow is going. That, to me, is just so mind-boggling. I'm still reeling from that. Um, but it's always good to hear from you, and uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance for any final thoughts you may want to leave with the uh, with the listeners this morning. Uh, well, it's sort of, I was listening to you at the beginning of the show, and you mentioned that President Trump is coming for a rally in Alaska, which is exciting. The, uh, <laughs> but that uh, he, I, I imagine that his folks who invited Dunleavy don't know about his record or. Has he endorsed Kelly Shabaka? Because it just right. seems very strange to me. Well, that was the weirdest. That was the weirdest stipulation everywhere. You just can't endorse Murkowski. That means I can't endorse Murkowski, but I can endorse anybody else, or I can endorse any. I mean, it's also confusing. I said it before. I don't know that if I was a candidate, if I would want or if I would if I would be happy or sad that I got endorsed by by Trump at this point, just because. It has so many different connotations. I'm just not even sure if I if I would want to have to try and suss out that headache. Um, but yeah, interesting that that was the that was the sticking point with the governor not to endorse Murkowski. But I guess it didn't mean that he had to endorse anybody else. I guess. Well, anyway, it should be fun. All right. Well, uh, Donna Ardwin, thank you so much for calling in this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Donna Ardwin, our guest uh, here on the Michael Duke Show this morning. Uh, good stuff from her. All right, folks, uh, we're getting ready. Ben Carpenter should be calling in here in just a hot second, and we'll be talking with him 
and getting him uh, all squared away for uh, hour two. Uh, grand juries is going to be our discussion talking point. I haven't talked about grand juries in a while. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. Um, we're gonna we're gonna get some we're gonna get some rundown on that. All right, we're going to uh, be back. The Michael Luke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free thinking radio. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Live around the world on the interwebs uh, and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station, it is The Michael Duke Show. Hi, how are you? Welcome to it. It's Friday. No, it's Thursday, but for me, it's Friday. Uh, that's right. Uh, Four-day weekend coming up for me, the 4th of July Independence Day on Monday. Uh, and I decided for my own mental health to take tomorrow off. So today is the final day of broadcast for the week. You'll have alternate programming on the stations tomorrow uh, and on Monday. And then we will be back on the air on Tuesday for you to uh, to hang out with and enjoy and talk about. Uh, so that'll be coming up. Uh, that'll be coming up next week. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are as well. Meanwhile, today we've got one final hour of the show that we're going to be uh, diving into and uh, and talking about some of the issues. Um, I'm hoping to get to some firearms uh, talk uh, here later in the show, uh, but you know, it just depends. We're going to see where the flow takes us. This morning, I got a early text message from. Um, uh, from Representative Ben Carpenter asking if he could come on talking about grand juries. Now, I've had several conversations over the last 10 years about grand juries. I think that they are, as I said earlier, a cornerstone of the uh, of the American, you know, the legal system. They are the final check on many things, including uh, specifically grand juries can look into government malfeasance in a way that, uh, you know, really kind of short circuits the system because it's tough when you've got government controlled courts uh, trying to investigate government entities. There's a lot of uh, conflict of interest in there, and that's really the purpose of the grand juries. Uh, so anyway, Ben sent me a message this morning and said they disbanded the Kenai Grand Jury, and we wanted to get some details on that and wanted to talk with him about that uh, because he is hot on that trail. So we're joined right now by Ben Carpenter, GOP State Rep from District 30 down on the peninsula. Good morning, sir. How are you? 
Good morning, Michael. Uh, you can hear me good. I can hear you good. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're we're uh, we're doing good. Do I sound beautiful? That's my question. Do I sound beautiful? All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, 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 just say no because I'm obviously not. Uh, all God's creatures are beautiful. All God. Wow, that was a, that was a mom. That was a mom answer right there. Mom, am I beautiful? All God's creatures are beautiful. Um, all right, Ben. Well, I got to say, I did catch wind of something. I got an email yesterday or day before. Uh, from somebody on the Kenai about grand juries. And I was going to look into it because I I hadn't really been paying attention. But I have covered grand juries in the past. I believe that they're a very, very important tool uh, for uh, people and citizens to be able to protect their freedoms specifically against government. And you sent me this message this morning, and I felt like it was serendipitous. So um, give us the rundown exactly what is going on down in the Kenai. Uh, Obviously, you're better informed on this than I am. So tell us what's happening down there. Yeah, thanks, Michael, for the opportunity. And and I wanted to come on and just uh, bring everybody up to speed before um, things get out in the news media and who knows sure. where it goes from there. Um, what we there are some things that I can talk about and some things I probably shouldn't talk about. Um, I just want to uh, bring everybody up to speed here. So the, the the grand jury is a very serious thing. It's very it's fundamental to our our type of government. And if you look at our state constitution, you have article one, that's a declaration of rights. And the first one is our inherent rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that type source of government, civil rights. That's number, uh, the third section, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly that we have due process. And then there's grand jury and the grand jury. The last sentence in the, in that um, section says the power of grand juries to investigate and make recommendations concerning the public welfare or safety shall never be suspended. Right. And what happened in Kenai yesterday was a suspension of the grand jury. Judge Wells, upon hearing that the grand jury decided, voted, and agreed, uh, majority members, to go a direction and investigate a subject concerning the public welfare, that she told them to go home and your, your services are no longer required. And this is a, a grave misjustice. Uh, it is it, it flies in the face of our Constitution. And it is in violation, I believe, of statutes and potentially um, criminal criminal statutes. I'm not an attorney. Right. But we need we need some good legal uh, legal folks to, to start taking a look at this. I had a conversation with the attorney general and um, he is aware of what happened. Uh, I have actually been working with the attorney general and his staff for weeks now on the uh, grand jury issue that we have, which is we have two different types of authority for the grand jury. What I will call um, AS 124070 authority, which is the normal way that a, that a grand jury um, proceeds. The prosecuting attorney brings an indictment and the grand jury decides whether they're going to further that indictment. And they, if they do, they give it to the judge. If they decide no, then the case doesn't go forward. That's the normal flow of how our, our legal system works right now. Right, right. There, there's also 124040 authority, which is, and that's AS 12.40.040, that um, grand jury members, if they have knowledge of a crime, may investigate and may issue an indictment, regardless of whether the prosecutor was aware of the crime or not. And right. then the prosecutor is obligated to uh, push that 
indictment forward. Right, kind of a self-direction kind of thing. Like we don't need the government's permission to investigate so, this crime and to and to and to push it forward for prosecution. So what has happened yesterday is that twelve forty forty authority was suspended. The grand jury voted. My understanding, I wasn't there. This is what I'm hearing from uh, secondhand from one of the grand jurors themselves um, through through another person. But what, what happened was the grand jury took a vote. One of the members presented some information and said, hey, uh, do you want to investigate? The majority of the grand jury said, yes, we want to investigate. When they call, uh, decided to call a witness, the judge stepped in and closed them down. And that is that is um, that is uh, wrong. Well, it's in, in so many words. Well, it sounds like to me like it's a direct violation of the constitutional provision for grand juries. I mean, if it's yeah, so, sh- shall not be suspended is pretty clear, pretty, pretty clear language. And from my understanding in the email that I got yesterday uh, about this is that it was in part had to do with an investigation into components of the judiciary itself. My question is, how can the judge even rule on that without a, a you know a conflict of interest and everything? And again, let alone the constitutional aspects of it. I mean, if this is an investigation into the into the judiciary that's being squashed by the judiciary itself, I mean, that's some real issues going on there. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, uh, the statute specifically says that the grand jury has access to is entitled to access at all reasonable times to the public jails and prisons, to offices pertaining to the courts of justice in the state and to all other public offices and to the examination of all public records in the state. The, 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 the juries, the grand juries, one of the grand juries main purposes is to look after the public welfare of its government, right? To make sure that its government is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Right. And in this case, it is my understanding, although I wasn't there with the grand jury, um, there's only a, a limited number of people who are actually allowed to be in there when they're talking and discussing things. My understanding is that there is a, a, a claim of, of uh, corruption within the judiciary that has um, now been squashed by a sitting judge that the grand jury is not allowed to investigate. And that is, it, it flies in the face of the Constitution, it flies in the face of the statutory authority of the grand jury. And if it, if it is indeed a judge acting on behalf of somebody who is going to be investigated by the grand jury, then I think there's a legal case for, um, for a, a criminal negligence here on the judge's part. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, again, just on the face of it, it would seem so uh, simply because that, as I was saying earlier, and as you just alluded to, the grand jury is the final shield and bulwark of the people against the government. I mean, it's very spell. You know, it's clearly spelled out things that are in the government, the the people's interest and the people's welfare uh, against the government. The grand juries have been used across the country to root out things like government corruption and everything else. Because you know, the machine when the machine is eating you, nobody wants to stop the machine. You can't go to the to the governmental courts and try and get it to stop. That's the power of the grand jury. The people in those areas decide whether or not to send those things forward. Um, and that's the that's the important function of the grand jury. It literally is the last line of defense for for many people. So so Ben, what's what's happening now? I mean, like you said, when the news media gets a hold of this, if they even decide to 
um, if they even decide to uh, report on it. Um, you sounded like you may be a little worried that there'll be some spin or something on the, where is this going now? Well, um, reported corruption or suspected corruption or having problems with holding our judges accountable in the state of Alaska is nothing new, right? This is something that's been, um, kind of sticking in people's craw for many, many, many years. Right. And we had been working there. A number of us have been working behind the scenes to kind of move the grand jury process forward so that investigatory grand juries, you know, it has been the case of the, the, the prosecuting attorneys have um, decided that uh, what the grand jury can and can't um, investigate. And so I think the public, when they find out the totality of what's been going on here for the last few weeks, will be proud of those who are involved because we've been very patient. We've been doing our due diligence and, and, and making the system work for itself and and have justice, um, have justice to peaceful means. We, we aren't an angry mob yet. <laughs> we, we do have due process here and we do have uh, a government that needs to um, uphold the law and, and uh, uphold the Constitution. So we're, we're working forward with that. I, I don't know. And I, I, there are others that are not exactly sure what you do when you have a conflict between the three branches of government, government in a sense. So who is there an arrest that needs to be made or is there a um, an impeachment that needs to happen or does this go to uh, some sort of a arbitration or whatever? So we're, we're looking through that in the next uh, couple of days here to figure out what the right course of action is. But it is very clear that our statute has been violated and our constitution has been violated with the actions of this judge. Right. And it, it isn't just one judge. We know that there are other judges in the past with similar issues where the, the grand jury is, has requested or somebody has requested a member of the grand jury is requested to conduct an investigation and the judiciary, a judge has said, no, you're not going to do this. Or a prosecuting attorney has said, no, you're not going to do this. So this is, it is evidence of a systemic problem that we are trying to uh, both correct uh, misjudgments within the people and potentially processes that need to be put in place to to enable um, full full execution of the law. Yeah, and it is such an unusual situation. I could see not having a way to really, you know, not understanding what the process is to move forward on this. But to me, in just a plain reading of what you just, you know, what you read about the Constitution, what the Constitution says, what this judge did, um, it would seem to me that somebody need that there needs to be some kind of recusing or something of the case from this judge if that is uh, is the case so is the attorney general giving you any direction yet is the state you know what's going on with this i mean as far as that goes so can you say or i i can't say right now and that's not to obfuscate um literally this this incident happened near the close of business yesterday and the conversations i had um have been over last night late last night so we have today's business day to dive into this and figure out what, what's going to happen. And, and that's not to, not to offer an excuse or, or delay. Right, just, right. It's just, it's just happened. <laughs> right. It's just mechanics of simple mechanics of we got to get it done. Um, I, I'm seriously concerned. Uh, the judiciary is supposed to be a co-equal balancing branch of government. And if it, if there is, um, as they're saying, if, if there is sus suspicion of some kind of, you know, problem, collusion, uh, corruption, whatever, then it needs to be rooted out for sure. 
and this and the grand jury being uh, stymied in this, to me is. I mean, that's a direct attack on the freedoms and the protections that are baked into the Constitution against government uh, yeah. at this point. Total, totally agree, Michael. You, we've got a situation here where two two statutes. You've got people can look this up too. They go to the akleg.gov website and, and punch in in statutes. Um, AS twelve point four zero point zero three zero is the duty of inquiry into crimes and general powers. And it says that the grand jury shall inquire into all crimes committed or triable within the jurisdiction of the court and present them to the court. The grand jury shall have the power to investigate and to make recommendations concerning the public welfare or safety. And that has specifically been denied the grand jury by one judge. Right. The, the following statute is the AS 124040 authority. This is if an individual grand juror knows or has reason to believe that a crime has been committed, that it is triable by the court. The, the juror shall dec- disclose it to the other jurors who shall investigate it. This is this is statutory authority that is being denied um, the grand jury. Well, yeah, and in the this case. and the verbiage that basically says in the Constitution that it shall not be suspended. Um, the power of that grand jury shall not be suspended, and yet this judge says, "Nope, you're done. Go home." Well, that's I don't know what, what your definition of suspended looks like, but that looks pretty close to mine. Uh, I yeah, maybe there's a legal term that uh, has a nuance there. I don't, <laughs> right, I don't know. Right. Uh, you know, it's not that the not that they won't call another grand jury, but that's not the point. I mean, that's that's you know, another grand jury gets called and and it, it only investigates the things that the judge says they can. That's not that's not the spirit of the law. Right. No, that's not the spirit of the statute or of the Constitution itself or the yeah. history of the grand juries uh, in and of themselves. I mean, that flies right in the face of what the grand juries were created for uh, because the framers were concerned about the judiciary, uh, you know, not having oversight in that, uh, um, in you know, in that co-equal branch of government, as it were. Uh, ben, um, you got a second to hold on with us here? Sure. All right, hold the line for just a second. We're going to continue in just a moment. Representative Ben Carpenter will get some final thoughts on this issue, and then maybe we'll get Ben's take on what uh, came out of the uh, budget as well. Since we have him on the phone, we might as well. We'll continue. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We'll be back with more and Representative Ben Carpenter right after this. All right, Ben Carpenter's uh, our guest. Um, uh, so, Ben, it's just me, you, and 49 of our closest friends on Facebook and YouTube. Um, I'm shocked. I mean, when I when I saw this, I was like, well, that just didn't seem right. When I saw the email late yesterday, I was like, that just doesn't seem – I got to go look more into this. And then you sent me that message this morning, and I'm like, well, okay, maybe there's something to this. I mean, this is – I mean, would you blame me for for reading an email like that and thinking, oh, somebody's just overreacting because there's no way that would happen here that we would violate the Constitution or basically, you know, sideline a grand jury over something like that? Um, I mean, shocking, I guess, is not too strong a word for it. Yeah. So if we play if we play devil's advocate for a second here and say, hey, you know what? Um, The bureaucrats, judges, uh, judges, staff, clerks and all that have got. A lot of things on their plate, right? There's a lot of lot of 
um, cases to, to process through. We really don't want crackpots coming before the grand jury. And, and frankly, everybody who gets convicted is going to think they're wrongly convicted. I mean, that's no surprise. I want to speak to a grand jury because they, I was screwed. And, and I, I totally get that. But we don't have a process. The, the courts don't have a process to deal with, um, to separate out those cases where the grand jury has a legitimate concern and those where the grand jury might be like, you know what, quit wasting our time. This is not an issue. We haven't gotten to that point yet. The grand jury, this is the furthest that the grand jury has gotten where the grand jury says, yes, I want to investigate. Prior, that either the prosecuting attorney or the judges said, no, you won't investigate. You're not allowed to. So now we're, we're finally at the point where the grand jury says, we've seen enough of the evidence that we want to investigate. And now the judge says, no, you can't. It is a constitutional crisis right now. Who, who enforces this? Which, does, does one branch enforce the other branch to, to follow the Constitution? Right. Like, this is, this is a, a true constitutional crisis for us right now in regards to the grand jury um, problem. Right. And I, so, don't, I don't know what level Judge Wells is, if it's, she's a local judge, superior circuit, you know, whatever. But, I mean, even my fear is, is that even, say, for example, the attorney general gets involved, it then it has to go to a, a higher and higher court. And if we're talking about investigation, ju- investigating judicial corruption um, or something like that, I mean, it's like you said, it's a constitutional crisis, but it also is a crisis in the faith in government. If they are are unwilling to have an investigation into their own division, into into their own branch of government, that that leaves all that that's a whole other bunch of questions there at that point. If they're not willing to do that. Yeah, how how deep does this rabbit hole go? Exactly. I mean, because if the yeah. if if the attorney general has to bring it and say we need to go over this judge's head and go over here, we need to put this question to a superior court or to the Supreme Court, and if none of them want to have it investigated, that now you've got a danger of endangering the faith of people in government in general at that point. That, I mean, that's not a good thing at all. Yeah. So the Department of Law, which is underneath the attorney general has a public corruption division or, or section within it that are that they specialize in public corruption. I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect that they will probably become involved at some point here. Um, and, and, and this is, you know, a novice speaking here, right? I, I've never dealt with this type of issue before. And you, you wanted to talk about money issues, budget issues. And, you know, every time I come on, we talk about budget issues. And here, I've got an opportunity to talk about something that's not, not money related. But the, the point is uh, that I'm trying to get to is there's a process, there's a way to deal with this. We, we're just in the infancy of trying to figure that out. Right. Does it go through the executive branch and uh, an indictment get put down to another grand jury to investigate and, and a judge held accountable? Or does the, the troopers go in and say, hey, we have evidence? I, I, don't, I don't know. If, if none of that happens, then the alternative would be an impeachment charges brought against the judge from the from the senate and and if that doesn't happen if that outcome is not what needs to happen then the people have the ability to not retain that judge when when they come up for the retention election so those are the processes that we have in place that we we just need to figure out which one we're going to follow uh ben carpenter our guest we're about to jump back into it the michael duke show common sense liberty-based Free thinking radio. Like and share the show. Like and follow the video. Let's uh, get going on here. We go. 
Ben Carpenter is our guest today. We're continuing on in the second segment here, GOP State Rep for District 30. Um, so I guess, Ben, the final question is, we've been talking about grand juries. There was a grand jury that was disbanded in Kenai yesterday, which is contrary to a plain reading of the state constitution and, in fact, imp- impeaches or impinges on their statutory authority and rights as well. A local judge disbanded them and said they could not look into uh, what is reportedly uh, being said was some kind of corruption within the judiciary. Um and so, Ben, you said, you know, you've been talking with the attorney general. We are. And I think you, and I agree with you. I think you've used the word we're at a constitutional crisis because we've never had anything really come up like this before. We don't have a mechanism baked into place to be able to, how, you know, how to figure out how do we deal with this. I mean, if we took it, and I was just saying during the break, if we take this and say, well, that judge has got to go. Well, how do we decide that? Well, that's got to go to another court. Well, if we're looking at actual judicial misconduct or judicial, you know, some kind of problem in the judiciary that they wanted to investigate, are we going to get a true and fair hearing from a superior court or a Supreme Court? Or, you know, this is a constitutional crisis. I think you're 100% right. So walk me through the potential mechanisms. Again, this just happened late yesterday. So today's the day that it's going to have to be dealt with. But walk me through the um, you know, you know what you think is going to happen mechanically here today, and and what we, you know, where we go from here. Thanks, Michael. And and I don't know exactly what's going to happen. That's that's part of the the excitement here, and the and the, the um, <laughs> you know this is new. It's it, we're we're going to figure this out as we go. Um, there are some options. Um, the um, Department of Law has a a section within it that's. Uh, for public corruption, and I suspect that the grant that the uh, attorney general may um, involve them, and and that would that would mean that they would do some sort of uh, some level of an investigation, and if there's a, a um, law that's been broken or, or reason, they might issue an indictment that would then have to go to another grand jury to investigate and prefer charges, or or maybe if there's just the law's been broken, the the troopers investigate and and make an arrest. If if those things don't happen within the executive branch, then then the judiciary, I'm sorry, the legislative branch can bring impeachment charges if there's if it rises to that level, right? Right, I'm, right. I'm I'm arguing that maybe it does. So the next legislature would have to, or during special session, would have to offer impeachment charges against a judge, or or there's a a grounds for lack of retention in the next retention election for that particular judge. So those are three different processes that we currently ha- have in place to be able to follow, and we just have to figure out which one of those is going to be the appropriate one here. And, and maybe there's something that I'm not, I'm not seeing and unaware of right now. This, this raise, this raises a, um, a bigger question. Um, and I don't know if you, the, if you want to steer into this territory with me, but I'm going to, I'm going to jump in with both feet. I mean, Alaska has a fairly unique, um, plan for the judiciary itself, how judges are chosen or in our case retained. Um, and we, you know, we operate under, I believe it's called the Missouri plan. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the Missouri plan for, um, 
pulling these, uh, you know, judges and selecting judges, and it's and it's a retention form. Now, from what my understanding is, is that this was very popular back in the 40s and the 50s, but has since fallen out of favor. And in fact, I think we're the only state that still votes in this case not to elect judges or not to, you know, do it on their merits, but basically we just vote to retain. Um, and people have been saying for the last five or six years specifically that this is a kind of a problematic approach that we need to change the way that our justices and our judges are chosen. Um, do you want to weigh in on that with your thoughts? Have you had any, have you dug into this at all or, or looked at what's going on? So as far as making changes to the way we um, retain our judges or, or pick our judges, I haven't done any specific uh, investigation into that yet. Um, and even if this if this is the Missouri plan, I'm I'm unaware of that. It's it's vaguely in my mind. It strikes something as true, but um, uh, you know, even if we did maintain a, a retention system, it, it kind of makes sense to me that a judge gets appointed for a, a time, and then the the retention piece of it is that they aren't retained automatically, and unless the judge uh, goes out and campaigns and there's enough support to retain them, <laughs> in my mind, that would be a better retention system than what we have now, which is just that by default, they get retained until, unless there's enough public outcry that, that says they don't get retained. That That's a um, a, a process that's ripe for, right. for corruption. If you're, if you're able to hide the problems, then they just continue. But if the judge wasn't retained automatically, unless they can convince people that they deserve another, another 10 year uh, stint or another five year stint or whatever, then that would be preferable in my mind. Do we want to get to a place in the state of Alaska where we're electing our judges and, and there's one more one more um, person out there during an election process, election cycle that's got signs out there and has got to have public meetings and run through the, the election process? Uh, maybe. I mean, if that's the solution that we want to go for, um, for um, reining in some of this um, uh, judges and their, and their crazy rulings, um, Maybe, I mean, something's got to change because what's happening right now is not working. Well, because we've seen, I mean, it's, I think we've had one judge in, uh, I think it was 15 years or something who has not been voted for retention at this point. I mean, it, it, it really kind of hides it because, you know, would you like to retain this judge? Well, I'm not really paying attention and I haven't done it and none of this stuff has been brought out into the public eye. So sure, I'll retain. I mean, I personally have been the last 10 years have been voting to retain no judges because I just don't like the system um, at all because I think it's fundamentally broken and flawed. Because as you said, if the thing is hidden in the dark and nobody really knows and they're just asking you if you should retain them, I don't think that we've gotten enough information to know whether or not we should retain them or not. Um, and I, I, too, would say, even though I think that there are political aspects and problems where, you know, you're turning some of the politics in on judges when you have to elect them, at least you'd have a better idea of where they stood and what their beliefs were and what the system said. Um, I think at least it would be a step in the right direction. I think this is a I think this is I think our, our judicial uh, uh, the choose the system for choosing our judiciary is broken in this state and it definitely needs to be addressed. And I know some people are talking about the con con as a way to fix that. Yeah, Michael, I'm I'm, I'm like minded. I, I believe that we do have a system that needs to be improved. I am open to suggestions and, and alternatives and we'll do um do my due diligence and, and figure out what the right way forward is to, to make improvements. Can we get to it in this next legislature? Well, maybe <laughs> depends on how people vote in the election, right? Right, right, right. Does the constitutional convention have to take it up? Well, they might, 
that might be where this is the best um, best place to address it. So, well, it's something I think we're going to have to get into here over the next year for sure uh, on the program here to discuss uh, fully, and maybe we'll get some experts on different legal systems and 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 retention and election systems for judges because, again, it's supposed to be a co-equal branch of government, but we've seen what a pivotal role the courts have played in policy in the state of Alaska. Uh, whether it was the Willikowski decision, whether it was the PCE thing, whether it was, you know, dedicated versus designated. I mean, we got a lot, there's a lot of things in there that uh, the, the, the judiciary has a tremendous amount of power on. And I think it's something that we have neglected to really focus in on over the last uh, uh, couple decades in the state. And I think it's something now that's worth the, worth the look for sure. You know, um, if I've got uh, just a few seconds, Michael, no, I'd just got, like to say that you got uh, five, five minutes here. Go ahead. Yeah, there's there's some argument from some folks that say, you know what, the, the legislature and the governor just need to ignore what the judges say. The, the branch, the, the judiciary is the weaker branch. And so it doesn't really matter. Whatever the judge says is we can just ignore it. Well, maybe that's true if you've got enough people within the legislature and a strong enough backbone of a governor that is willing to um, weather the backlash. But should we really, do we really want a, a system of government, a form of government where we're regularly ignoring what's happening in one branch. I mean, right. doesn't that doesn't that highlight that there's something broken there? If we're gonna I've, just ignore what the function, I would. Right? And so, I would agree totally. Yeah. Right. So I don't want to get to a place where where we're just you know picking and choosing which which cases we ignore and which we um, abide by. So you know the the judges in the past who have made financial decisions for the state that, that you know they say no the legislature has to spend money this way. Well, that's not the role of the judiciary. That that's the role exclusively of the legislature. Right. We get to make those those financial decisions, and it shouldn't be that that the power of the the judiciary encroaches on the power of the purse. That 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 can't be. So we either have to make a decision at that point: do we ignore what that judge said, or do we remove a judge who's who's usurping authority? Because it's it's a broken system at that point. The judge ought to know that if if they're going to make a ruling that's directing the legislature how to spend money, that that's an improper use of their authority. They don't get to make that call. That is the judiciary or the the legislative branch's call. Right. So we need we need a a system in place whereby that judge can be removed because they obviously don't understand their authority. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, I agree. I think that we need some kind of and, and as Kevin points out, the only judge that has been has been voted not to be retained uh, it was a very high profile case. It was an outrageous uh, a verdict and decision by the judge. There was a huge backlash, and it took a lot of work. But that was one judge in. I think it was 35 or 40 years that had not been voted to be retained in the system. So, uh, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. We've got to look at this. And, you know, maybe if there is some merit to what the grand jury was looking at, maybe we can root out some of the problems in there as well. But I'm, I'm very, very interested to see what takes place today, Bannon, to find out what uh, what happens? I'm assuming you're going to keep us uh, on board here and keep us uh, in the loop as to what's going on. I I will. I, I would also ask the public's patience that um, that I'm not going to let this down. I'm not going to I'm not going to forget about this. And there we do need to work through things, which doesn't need to be um, 
you know, tried in, in public opinion. So we need some time to, to work through things here. Um, I, I would just like to say that, that I suspect that gra- uh, investigatory grand juries haven't been happening in the state for a very long time. Yeah. I, I, I think that the last, maybe the last major investigation was during the Sheffield administration. And it, it may be decades that we have gone without prosecutors and judges allowing investigatory grand juries. And what does that mean for state government if the power of the grand jury to investigate the public welfare has been suspended for 30 years? Right. What does that what does that well, mean? How, and, how and deep does this rabbit hole go? Exactly. I mean, what level of corruption has that allowed to grow if they have been not allowed to investigate in any branch of government? If they have not been allowed to investigate what the government doesn't, because these are all government employees, if they're not allowed to investigate what the government doesn't want to allow them to, to investigate, what is actually hidden under all that stuff? It's a spooky, it's a spooky thought. It, it is a valid question. There are grand jurors who have raised their voice from time to time that say, yes, we have been told by either the prosecutor or the judge that we can't investigate that. That, that is, that is known. Those are, I can put names to those statements. I'm not going to do that publicly, <laughs> right? But that, that has happened uh, over the past. It's not just recently over this, over one particular case, it's over different types of cases over the last um, decade or so. Right. So, Anyway, we're going to stay on top of it. I will update you as best I can, you know, at the appropriate times. I, 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 um, I was conflicted as to whether I needed to bring this out to the public at this particular time. Is, is it going to serve our best interest to highlight it now, or should we allow the process to kind of take take place? And and I, I just I woke up this morning and I said, you know what? Transparency means the public needs to know what's happening, right? And they need to know sooner rather than later. And that gives them maximum ability to hold their government accountable. No, I would agree. And so, yeah. And so that's why I decided to come on today. Um, my, my intention is not to, is also to not get so um, into the weeds here that we, um, we damage our ability to, to right. prosecute or, or, or find a remedy. Yep. So, well, I, thanks for the opportunity, Michael. Ben, thank you for coming on. Keep us in the loop. We appreciate it. And I think you're 100% right. We need to know this information, uh, at least that it's happening, so that we don't have to have the details, but we need to know it's coming on. Ben Carpenter, our guest, hold the line, Ben. Thank you so much, folks. we got more coming up. Phone lines are open up next, The Michael Duke Show. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, uh, final thoughts for Ben. Uh, we were running up against a hard break there, so uh, just final thoughts. Anything else you want to leave us with, Ben, before we go? I mean, I appreciate you coming on, and I know there's always that conundrum of, do I let people know that it's going on? Do I, I mean, is that endangering anything? I think we've been generic enough here that hopefully it's just gotten people's attention as to what's going on, but I think you're right. I think in the spirit of transparency, we need to know. We, we need to know what's going on. Yeah, I I, um, I don't have any much more to add than than what we did. Maybe just one question, Michael, to to uh, change the subject briefly. The one that you really wanted to talk about today, if I was to buy a 1911, which brand would I go with? Boy, that's a good question. You know, there's really no such thing as a bad 1911. Um, you know, I have had over the course of years um, 
Um, I've had Springfield 1911s. I think that they're really nice. They are expensive. I've had uh, not as expensive as like Kimbers. Kimbers are super nice. I mean, they are the they are the Rolls Royce of 1911s. But I've also had a $300 Rock Armor Rock Island Armory 1911 that worked just fine. So, I mean, John Moses Browning was a genius, and that pistol is like the epitome of simplicity and reliability. So, it's pretty hard to say if I was going to, you know, if you got money that you were willing to burn and you want to make a good investment on something that's not going to lose its value for a long time, a Kimber, you can never go, you know, can't go too far wrong on that. Um, a Springfield, I think, is a good middle ground. I've got a couple Springfields and I like them a lot. Um, and of course, if you can find an actual Colt on the aftermarket uh, that's been taken care of, you know, that's a that's a that's another good choice. Uh, but even if you know. Even if you just go the Rock Island Armory route, there's a few of those out there that I've shot over the years that have just been, you know, really solid pistols. So, uh, 1911 is not a, uh, not a, not a, not a bad. Uh, there's not a bad one out there as, as far as uh, I think on that one. Yeah, very good. I, I've always wanted to have one. I, I it isn't in part of my collection now, and and uh, at some point in time, I would like to. Uh like to own one yeah depending on how big your hand is and how comfortable you are in it you could go the para ordnance route too para ordnance makes a 1911 that's a double stack um and uh which is a it's one of my favorite guns uh i have i have one of the original they weren't even i i bought one when they weren't even making full guns they were just making kits that you could uh put on the it was basically a frame or receiver that you could put on uh you buy another pistol and and make um you know mishmash them into one pistol um, and I really like that one as well, but now pair ordinance has been making the double stacks for years. So a double stack 1911 is twice the fun is what I'm saying right now. That's what you need to ch- check out. But. Well, I don't, I, I don't have giant hands, so yeah. I probably, I probably just have average size hands. So I, <laughs> I, uh, I probably need to stay away from the, uh, the large, uh, double stack, uh, 45s or, or uh, desert Eagles, that type of thing. I don't, yeah. I don't think I would, um, Find that comfortable. Greg Collins says uh, he says his Sig 1911s are by far out of the box better than his Kimber. So a Sig 1911 is not. Everybody's making 1911s now. So you choose your favorite brand, and you could probably go out and find them a 1911 in that brand. So see, that's that's the challenge. There's too many options. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, no, I mean it's just I have a I have a the the one that the one of my favorites the Springfield that I have is a combat uh combat commander which is a it's tiny. I mean I I got big hands and I could basically lay the whole pistol across the front of my hand. Um and it is like the ultimate concealed carry little pistol, but uh Springfield makes a good one. They they're all pretty good. Uh, you know, like I said, I don't think you'll find a bad one out there. Um, uh, at, you know, from, from $300 to $1,500, $1,800, you can spend as much money as you want or as little as you want. So you can awesome. go, ch- go check it out. It's been a pleasure, Michael. Thanks for uh, making time this morning. All right. It was, thank- uh, an important conversation. It was, and I'm looking forward to hearing what's going on. And, uh, I, I hope that you'll keep us in the loop on it. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. All right. Appreciate you calling in, uh, Ben Carpenter, our guest here, uh, on the program. I suppose I should start the phones. I I said join us on the phones and call in, and then I didn't uh, set the phone lines up um, because I was busy uh, doing my thing here. Let me. Uh, Thanks for calling the call in line of the Michael let me, Luke Show. Let me get Powered this uh, all squared away. We'll we'll figure out.
whoa, who's going to be doing it here? Um, oh, Ben, come try some of mine. Rock Island also has a wide selection of calibers, 9.45, 10 millimeter. It is a, uh, it is a fantastic, uh, it's such a fantastic design. The 1911 is just, ugh. Something about it, it's just beautiful, man. It's beautiful. All right. We got one call on hold, um, and we're going to be joining them here in less than 30 seconds. I don't really have time to go figure out who it is, so we'll pick that up here in just a minute. Uh, but we'll take any calls you want. We'll talk about, you know, we'll talk about anything uh, for the last segment of the show this morning because we can. Oh, got to go. All right, you ready to do it? Let's go. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like and share this video. Like and follow the show page. Subscribe and ring the bell on YouTube. All right, welcome back to the program. Ben Carpenter actually got us in the mood uh, during the break. He was asking me my opinion on 1911, so uh, he kind of got me in the mood for a little bit of firearms action. So we'll open up the phone lines if there's anything you want to talk about today. Um, I don't have enough time to really get into any of the things that I was going to get into over the firearms issues, but uh, if you just want to talk guns, I'm your, uh, I'll be your Huckleberry. I'll be your Huckleberry. Let's go over here, see what you guys have to say. We start off uh, with this caller at 433-3150, the Pivotel call-in line, powered by our friends at SatelliteWest.com. Good morning, caller. Who's this, and uh, where are you calling from? This is Carlene and yeah. Hello, Carlene. Hello. Um, interesting, your interview with Ben Carpenter, and he was even wondering if he should uh, bring this subject up, uh, the transparency, and then just decided this was the day. Um, I felt like what happened at Uvalde, some people just wanted to stand back and see what transpired, but it just seemed like truth was coming out and was coming out and was coming out. But if you just stand back and watch, then... Um, it gives the other side time to create their own narrative. And in the law books at schools, like Forbes Law School or wherever, they have pages and pages on prosecutorial misconduct. And perhaps there's the same thing on miscon misconduct judiciary. judiciary. So that would be interesting to read up on that. Yeah, no, I mean, look, there's there's been plenty of there's plenty of history out there of misconduct amongst people who are supposed to be uh, upholding and supporting the laws, whether that's prosecutorial, whether that's uh, judicial, whether that's uh, police and law enforcement. Um, you know, public. You know, the, we we've seen it time and time again. They are not immune to the temptations of doing bad things. Um, and it's really worrying to me that the second that somebody says, we're going to investigate your bunch, and somebody says, nope, you can't do that. I mean, that immediately to me is like a red flag on the play. 
Um, you know, we, we saw, we've seen this. I mean, we saw what happened with Ted Stevens. We've seen what's happened with, uh, uh, you know, misconduct involving police officers across the country, uh, who are supposed to be protecting us, uh, sometimes all the way up to the chiefs of police doing things that, uh, you know, that they talk out of one side of their mouth and they're doing something illegal on the other side. I mean, this stuff is, it's real and it needs to be investigated. And most importantly, the grand jury is our tool as citizens to keep the government in check. And when the government squawks and says, no, 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 you can't do that. That is their mission. That is their purpose, Carlene. And then they could also be investigated and come out squeaky clean. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But it just seems like the the directions there's is pointing another direction. Right. Well, what's the what's the cop's favorite saying, Carlene? You know, hey, if you got nothing to hide, what's the problem? Why shouldn't we talk to you if you got nothing to hide? Same thing goes to those guys. If they've got nothing to hide, if you don't want, you know, then then why are you squawking? Why are you worried about it? If there's nothing to hide, nothing to see here move along, mm, there you go. Interesting. Thank you, Michael. Carlene, thank you for your call today. We appreciate it. That leaves all four lines open. If you would like to uh, sound off this morning, we're down to the last uh, four or five minutes here. we got time for probably one or two more calls if we're quick. 907-433-3150, 907-433-3150. Again, a reminder, I will not be here tomorrow or Monday. Um, Monday is the holiday. I'm taking tomorrow off to make it a four-day weekend for myself. And so if you tune in tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., you members of the 6 o'clock club, and don't hear me, don't send me messages, okay? I will be asleep. I will be asleep tomorrow morning. I can guarantee it. I will be sleeping in. So uh, we will be off the air tomorrow and Monday, returning on Tuesday to the program uh, to start things off fresh and full of vim and vigor uh, with a, I think we'll have some analysis from Brad Keithley on the budget come Tuesday for sure. So we'll be talking uh, about that uh, as well. It should be fun. Oh, speaking of which, speaking of six o'clock club, um, I forgot to put the I forgot to put up the post on the Facebook page that said I was closing out the order. So I will be doing that here in just a bit later this afternoon. So if you are interested in any of the swag that we have available, including the coffee mugs and the T-shirts and everything else supporting the show, um, if you go to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Michael Duke Show, and it's right there on that first link, if you go there and I haven't written that the ordering is closed, which I'm going to do later this morning, uh, then you could still order a T-shirt or a mug or whatever. Just let me know what you want, and we'll get it squared away there. Uh, again, facebook.com slash Michael Duke Show. But I will be ordering the rest of that stuff today. Back to the phones we go. Good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Robin from Fairbanks. Hello, Robin. What's on your mind? So I know this could be completely off topic, and I know this is one of the subjects that boils your blood, but how exactly did Alaska become so lax with their abortion laws? Like, I started looking up, obviously, after Roe Wade, and, like, Alaska was one of the first ones that legalized it before Roe versus Wade, and there's, like, no exceptions. Like, it could be eight months and still get an abortion, how did Alaska end up like that? Well, it was a decision by the judiciary based around our constitutional right to privacy. 
that's where the court decision came out from was that that it was that, that Alaska has a very heavy and strong provision for a right to privacy in our state constitution and that's what the justices and the judges used to justify that decision to say it's it's none of our business it's the people's business they can do what they want at that point point. and i don't know the exact year i'll be honest with you i would have to go back robin and look at the actual law but it has been around for a long time but that's the cornerstone of uh, the of of the of the abortion right in the state of Alaska is they're arguing that it falls under the right to privacy as provided by the state constitution. Maybe we can get deeper into that next week, Robin, to discuss it. Thank you for your call. One more call, I think, over here. Good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? It's Terry calling from Kodiak. Hello, Terry. What's on your mind? Quickly. Uh, I noticed that in the NRA magazine. Uh, there was a little spiel about uh, you can't uh, disarm a dog if somebody's uh, attacking you and you have a dog for your weapon. Uh, you, you can't disarm that. And I, I thought that schools should look into uh, military-trained uh, dogs wearing body armor to help protect the schools. <laughs> Uh, that, yeah, that's been discussed before on the program, and in fact, it's uh, be, I've seen it's been part of a discussion in some of the different states as well, uh, having a, a, a trained dog like that, like they use in combat situations. Uh, you know, it might be a solution. I mean, you, you may be right, Terry. It may be a way to help out. Um, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting, you can't, you can't disarm them, that's for sure. All right. Um, thank you for your call. Folks, we're out of time. I will see you on Tuesday. Have a fantastic 4th of July weekend. We'll see you then. All right, my friends. Thank you for being part of it today. Be kind. Love one another. Live well. That's all we can say. So make sure you have a great 4th of July weekend. Celebrate Independence Day in whatever way you see fit. The birth of this, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Yes, I'm rubbing your nose into my vacation. It's one day, Brian. You're the boss. You take one day. You could do it. I'm the boss. I took one day. I made a decision, executive decision. Take that time off, Brian. You can do it. All right, folks. Got to go. Thanks for coming in. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense. Liberty-based. Free-thinking radio.
shed our terrestrial radio skin. And now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show. <laughs> 